You're listening to the Life Tree Church Sermon of the Week. We pray that as you hear this word, you would be encouraged and inspired as you pursue Jesus in your everyday life. Good morning, Life Tree. When I sat down yesterday afternoon on the stool in front of the mirror, I didn't say to my daughter I'd like a mohawk. Let's just get that out of the way, yeah. I'm not down on the mohawk. I like it. But what's really cool for me is that even in the moment and in the aftermath, I cry because of the richness of the time with my daughter. And there are so many opportunities that we encounter in our day that have potential to be so much about intimacy and connection and depth of relationship. And it would be easy to see the mohawk that wasn't requested and miss the 30 minutes together that are so treasured. We're going to jump this morning into the book of Hebrews. If you've got a Bible on your phone or a physical real one with pages and print, pull it out. There will be some text up on the screen, but I'm not going to have a bunch of notes come up, but we're going to be looking at Hebrews 12. First pass, this preaches really well. In a rainstorm last night in my greenhouse with an audience of two, it went really well. My cat was in the romaine lettuce, listening attentively, and my dog was in the tomatoes, and it worked. And it struck me in speaking out the words last night that I would speak today to you. How much value there is when we've taken time on what God's doing in our lives, what he's teaching us, what we're taking from it, like nourishment from a meal, and speaking it out. And I I encourage you to find times and windows, like the worship team let us peek into their lives a bit this morning. And and when a person takes this place in our worship community and gets to talk, you get a peek often into their lives. But very often in your own life, you may not find time or carve out moments when you speak out what God's doing, when you reflect back on his goodness. And it's so rich. Even if all you've got as an audience is a cat sitting in the romaine lettuce. It's worth it. I was reading yesterday in the paper about the war, Russia-Ukraine, a hundred days. And every single one of those 100 days, President Zelensky takes to social media with a prepared speech, and he cries out to the hearts of the people of Ukraine. And he greets them with words like, brave people of a beautiful nation. And he calls courage in their hearts. He hasn't shaved in that time. He's worn camo army green the whole time. I don't think anyone's disputing in Ukraine whether their president is leading them well. Day after day, he is there to speak hope, to speak inspiration, to speak courage. And as many Ukrainians who are living in the Ukraine who I've heard speak say, 
We don't have an option. We must win. And he's speaking to that attitude, that mindset, that heart, which says there isn't an option to surrender. We must be victorious. And I think every one of us do well to have someone speak into our lives, looking into our situation, those places where it feels like the dam's going to burst, like we can't hold it any longer, like things are surging and the pressure's mounting and defeat looks imminent and victory is like, what? And someone speaks into that moment and says, no, this is a time to win. This is a time to stand. This is a time to fight. And today we're going to look at Hebrews 12, where the author to those Hebrews believers, starting out in Hebrews 10, says, remember those earlier days? And he, he goes back in their walk of faith at a time when it was not popular and it wasn't safe. And he talks about confiscation of their property. And he talks about visiting those in prison who were mistreated for their faith. And that might not be our normal day-to-day, -day, but I bet for every one of us, and this is a place I want to revisit and revisit this morning, there's a place where there's weariness or there's stress, and it's tough to go on. Some aspect, some dimension of your life. But verse 3 of chapter 12 is really what we're going to think about. All of this is being taught and spoken to us, what we're looking at this morning, verse 3 of chapter 12, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Growing weary and losing heart can look different for different people. But at some point it goes from why me, how much longer, to simply I can't go on. And things start to break down. So reading a bit from Hebrews 10, starting at verse 32. Remember those earlier days after you'd received the light? when you endured in a great conflict full of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times, you stood side by side with those who were so treated. So it sounds like there were groups of people taking turns being insulted and persecuted in their community. You suffered along with those in prison, and get this next line, say joyfully accepted joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because they knew it was for their faith, right? Because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So do not throw away your confidence. It'll be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you'll receive what he has promised. So that's kind of the backdrop setting to the passage we're going to read in a moment and take time studying verse by verse in chapter 12. These are people who aren't going to be getting the words we're going to look at today because they're living terrible, miserable, weak, faithless lives. They're not struggling day to day and the, the author's not suggesting their lives are a mess and, and they're mired in sin. They're actually people who joyfully accept confiscation of their property and visit fellow believers in prison and are willing to stand because they know they're identifying with the one in whose image they're made and is who, in whose image they're being conformed, that of Jesus. We move into chapter 11, getting closer to our target text in 12, what's often called the Hall of Faith. Name upon name is dropped. Barak 
and Samson and Gideon and Rahab, person after person, champion after champion, who in the moment, like many artists and composers, aren't recognized at all by their peers for who they were. Joseph, who does an amazing job leading the people, but he knows that what he was leading them to and through wasn't at all. It wasn't even a shadow of what God had planned for the people. And he's at the top of his game from a leadership perspective. He's been vindicated for everything that had been wrongly done towards him. But when he's on his deathbed, he's telling his fellow Israelites still enslaved in Egypt, there will be a time. There will be a day. We will go to a promised land. Make sure and take my bones out of this place of enslavement. Every one of them through Hebrews 11 was looking ahead to something greater. Now, if you were struggling, as the Hebrew recipients of this letter were in their time, persecuted, suffering, exposed, insulted, to be affirmed for what they've been doing so far, and then to be put into the company of the Chapters 11 crew, who had spanned generations of their nation's history, this was a beautiful thing. You were being identified with these heroes of the faith. The way that chapter 11 starts to wrap up and transitions into chapter 12 is remarkable to me because the writer says in chapter 11, 39, all of these were commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. If you can digest this even a little bit, you're getting ready for where he's going in the next chapter. None of them received what had been promised. You think of Abraham, how faithful he was. Yes, he got a son. That had been promised, but he was promised something much greater than a son. He was standing on a dark, starlit night looking up at the heavens, and God said, see the stars? Try to count them. That's your future. All he had to show for it by his death was a son. God had promised him millions of descendants. He had been promised all nations will be blessed through you. That hadn't come even close to true. And in the most beautiful and powerful way, every one of those people in Hebrews 11 who were holding out for a promise that they hadn't yet received, it's Jesus. It's Jesus. He's the fulfillment of all of them. It wasn't about getting land. It was about getting a place from which a king would arise, from the line of David. It was one who would come forth who would be a savior, and the salvation wouldn't be simply physical. It would be as all the disciples were shocked to find out, a spiritual salvation that would extend beyond a people group, beyond any class of society. It would be epic and so far-reaching. That was the promise. And the people in Hebrews 12 receiving this letter are being told, if you look at the final verses of chapter 11, God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect? And guys, that's been probably the big shocker for me this week. All of those beautiful people of faith, champions, followers, not giving up. They're called a cloud of witnesses at the start of our focus in Hebrews 12. All of them won't be made perfect, it says, it says until they get to meet up with us. So they're like lining the gymnasium like an audience, they've lived and testified and died 
in hopes of something they never got with their own eyes to see, but they've put forward a way of life and a way of faithfulness that's so compelling that now, with them watching on, the writer says, you're going to live a life of faith. They're going to cheer you on, and you, together with them, will be perfection. So it's, it's not going to be culminated until we live our life of faith and we're joined together with them in their lives of faith and together, collectively, we will see and experience firsthand this promise that's been held out for us. So in our commitment to Jesus that all of us have made, if you call yourself a follower, if you call yourself a Christian, there are myriad settings in which we run the risk of growing weary and losing heart. Just start thinking and maybe just call out one word, one phrase, one setting. Where could a person in their life start to grow weary and lose heart? Their marriage. Parenting. Those are the first two on my list. What else? Sickness. Your health. Betrayal. So relationships. Yeah. Mental health. Divorce. Community. Grief, yes. Loss. We have this, sorry? Faith. Leadership. We have this construct of how it's to be, and then real life happens, and it's not being the way it's to be. And we realize we're called to a life of faith, and as per the timeline mapped out in Hebrews 11, where none of them received what had been promised, God's very common way of dealing with people of faith is it doesn't happen as quick as we'd anticipated and it's harder along the way than we'd ever foreseen. How is this so rampant in our expectations that it'll be easy and it'll be quick and it's actually long and it's hard? And a picture is used repeatedly through the New Testament of what the Christian faith is like and this is how Hebrews 12 gets going. It's an athletic competition, and specifically, it's a race that requires endurance. So we're not talking about any big, beefy, muscular, 100-meter dashers. No Jamaicans in this one. This is when you line up the smallest framed, leanest limbed, lankiest people who have trained at high elevation with enormous oxygen-carrying capacity, who look mostly like legs up to their chest. Generally, frame-wise, they're tiny humans. And if you've ever done any running and then looked at a marathoner who's at a like international-level caliber and looked at their running times, most adults who are in reasonable shape can't sprint across Lifetree's parking lot at the pace these people run for two hours. You actually can't physically run as fast for a sprint just to get your car keys that you forgot at the house to get your kid to the basketball game that these people will perpetuate for two hours. Like it's physically not even a pace you can do and they do it 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 and you can watch a TV show and have a drink and have nachos and have a hot tub and they're still doing it and they're still doing it. It's insane. Because there's something they've trained for and something they've accomplished in their capacity that we aren't even familiar with. And that's what the author wants us to be familiar with. He has a picture 
in chapter 12. I think it's in verse 10. Our fathers disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. It's actually chapter 11. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been, what's the word? Trained by it. The Greek is gymnazo. It's a gymnasium. It produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been working out for it. It didn't come instinctually. It didn't come naturally. It didn't drop on them. They were, as Caleb alluded, in training. They were in a gym. They were working out, doing what came naturally, perhaps, but they had to work very hard at it. So at the start of chapter 12, we have two urges that are given to us, two directions to take. They're symbiotic in their outcome. Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Let us throw off everything that hinders. It actually means get rid of excess weight. If you read the message, that really beautiful modern-day paraphrase, Eugene Peterson said, spiritual fat. Get rid of your spiritual fat. And then he says everything that entangles, and he says parasitic sins. So if you get shedding the extra fat, and you get rid of parasitic sins, then you're able to do what the author says, which is fix your eyes on Jesus. So you've got the bleachers full of the cloud of witnesses who have gone before. The race is long, it's arduous, it's going to require intense perseverance and training in a gymnasium type of format, like it's going to be structured. You're going to have to shed extra fat. You're going to get rid of, and this is actually an athlete stepping up to the line in Greek competition, getting naked. They didn't compete with clothes on. You got rid of anything that could slow you down. And they were buff, and then they ran. And so anything that would be hanging on you would be an encumbrance. I had this early morning commitment this last week. I had to do it for work. I was downtown and finished around 6.30 in the morning, and I normally on that day have a Thursday run, and I had already told my run partner, I think I've got too many commitments, I won't be able to run. But I was done my commitments earlier than I thought, and I gave him a call and said, can you still meet at the lake and run? He's like, oh, yeah. And then I was like, I'm not wearing my running gear. Oh, okay. That was awkward. Because I normally don't wear much. I wear something. But I didn't have running gear on. So it was a weird vibe to run with everything that entangled. And I was reminded again, there's a reason that runners wear running stuff. Shedding extra weight. Now, there's certain sports where you just have to make the weight category, right? If you're in combat sports, if you're lifting things, you're going to be matched up with some incomparable weight. If you want to try to compete against smaller people, you'll have to yourself become a smaller person. You'll have to cut weight too. So, you know, I brought in some weights this morning just thinking about it. And this, what shocked me here is this is only 20 pounds. And I didn't know what to do with this, but I was just going to put it out and maybe some people will actually be adventurous enough to grab it. Because what you're going to say to yourself, I hope, is, uh, and I'm talking spiritually speaking, but we're using physical metaphors. I might be carrying 20 extra pounds. Pick that up and go, wow, I'm carrying that much extra? 
holy smokes. You pick it up and you go, that's heavy. And now like, okay, now walk around for a couple hours. Now go for a 10K. And now imagine getting rid of it. That's why athletes train with weights on and then take them off when it's, when it's run time, right? You get to shed the extra weight. But for runners, there's no weight categories. There never have been. It's like, do you want to be your fastest? Well, then get in your fastest shape. You can be whatever size you want. The skinny little guy's probably going to win. Not always, but whoever's carrying extra weight is giving up time. And that's the point. If you're carrying extra weight, you're giving up time. If you're giving up time, you're knowingly, and I want to be clear on this, every donut's a decision. You're knowingly choosing to not run well. And that's what the author's getting at. If you want to go back to Hebrews 11 and look at what Abraham was willing to do, what Gideon was willing to do, what Joseph was willing to do, what Rahab risked, and you see what these people put out there for their faith to be held well, strong, through the toughest of times. They were cutting weight all the time. They were clear on the promise. And we're being told that our joining with them in our life of faith is what will make them perfect. He's saying, you're in good company when you're with those people. And so I'm asking myself, what do I need to cut weight on? And it's interesting, in the original language, it's not bad stuff necessarily. It's just weight. Anything that's taking up your calendar, your bank account, or your mental energy, that's taking you away from what you're called to be doing. Verse 2, chapter 12, let us fix our eyes on Jesus. Can you just say, fix my eyes on Jesus? So I'm fixing my eyes on Jesus. The cloud of witnesses is cheering me on. I'm called to cut weight and get rid of anything that entangles or hinders. And it says the course that's laid out for me is not camouflaged, it's not hidden, it's not hard to find, it's not like you need to be one of these people like Bear Gryllis who orients to the sun and the stars and where the, the skeleton from the water buffalo is beside and you go, oh, that must be east. No, no, no. It says the path is clearly marked out for us. It's not like we don't know our coordinates or our marching orders. It's whether we want to cut weight and get rid of everything that entangles or hinders and fix our eyes on Jesus. And I think Chelsea did such a great job of messaging this morning, stop looking at yourself. Because this is what the world will urge us to do. It's not going well for you. Look inside yourself. Look inside yourself and what will you get? You'll get yourself. I want the creator of the universe to direct my paths. And as we move into the later verses of chapter 12... When it starts to use the picture of a father disciplining a child who they love, he's actually quoting from Proverbs 3. And the earlier verses there are, in all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. Proverbs 3 is, fix your eyes on Jesus, and he'll lay out the course for you. Proverbs 3 just lays beautifully right on top of Hebrews 12. It's got the course, it's got the fixation of the eyes, and it's got the loving father caring for the child they love, thus disciplining the child they love. In fact, the discipline proves, you're my child. Wayward kid in the park, losing their mind, not behaving well. 
not my monkeys, not my circus. If it's my child, then I have to acknowledge they are my child and I need to care for their well-being and their behavior. Who is Jesus to us as this one who is our fixation? Verse 2 says he's the author and the perfecter of our faith. Perfecter has the note of finishing or completion. He's actually the only one since the promise who's perfectly lived out the completion of the promise. He's got to the other side. He's fully defeated death, risen completely victorious. He's the only one worthy of our fixation. In Greek, he's the alpha, very start of the alphabet, and the omega, the very end of the alphabet. There's bookends, the start as he defines it, the finish as he defines it, he's done it all. He's mapped out the course. It's clear. You want to know where to go and how to get there? Follow Jesus. Fix your eyes on him. So he makes it perfect. He's the perfect finisher. Some translations say the pioneer, like he, he's the way paver. The course is clear because he went before us. You stop fixing your eyes on him, it will be confusing. You won't know where you're going. Listening to yourself could be your worst detour. When you start to listen to him and fix your eyes on him, the path becomes clear. The question is, are you willing to shed weight and shed every sin that easily entangles? When we're willing to do that and get rid of the parasitic behaviors, whether it's our bank account, our mental energy, our time and our calendar, we end up committed to this one on whom we're fixated. There's no healthy balance. It's a fixation. Fixations aren't healthy. There's nothing symmetrical about it. It's completely 100% devoted only to Jesus. That's why people had their property confiscated. That's why people were thrown in prison. That's why people were struggling and not understood in their society. How did, Joy How did Jesus do this? What was his pattern for this victory, both as the author and the perfecter? It says there was joy set before him. Then it says he endured the cross. Then it says he scorned its shame. And then it says he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. It's so gorgeous. So my question this week, looking through this passage, is what was the joy that was set before him that caused him to endure, to scorn shame, and bring him to complete victory and vindication. My initial thoughts had been that the joy set before him must have been getting back to being beside his father. But he's already had that. He gave that up. Philippians 2 says he emptied himself, he made himself nothing. He'd already been there. He'd already ruled and reigned. He knew what that was like. He was simply returning to what he'd already experienced and what was rightfully his. I don't think the joy set before him is returning to the throne at the right hand of the Father. I think he's after something he's never had before. It's you and me. The joy before him is you and me, guys. It's the church. It's the bride. He did all this. He's, he endured and he scorned the shame so that he could have us. That he could have us, that he could fulfill every promise that all those heroes of the faith had lived for and died for and never seen fulfilled. If I'm his joy and you're his joy, and he did that because he values and treasures us so much and relationship with us, 
we're right back in the barber's chair with me getting a mohawk. I'm with my daughter. And that's what I want. And that's what his heart craves for you. And really, all we're ever going to get into is a mind game of, is he good enough to be trusted enough that I will shed weight and say no to what's attractive on earth when I know deeply, truthfully, that though it may be hard, he will reward me. He is worth pursuing. He is worth my life quest. Because the only reason I would choose sin, the only reason that I wouldn't cut weight, every donut's a decision. The only reason would be I don't truly believe that he's that good of a dad, that he's that good of a lover, that he's really that bananas for me, and that he wants relationship with me so much and it's worth it all. Because if I believe that, I will do what needs to be done. I was on that awkward Thursday morning run with my friend wearing not the right clothes. He happens to have been awarded multiple times provincial coach in the province for long distance track athletes. We're kind of on different stratospheres, he and I. He's a dear friend. I was sharing with him this passage. I said, what are your insights as a coach? This is all about athletics and training and shedding weight. And this guy's represented Canada at the Olympic distance three times. He's the best ever marathon runner Canada has known. And he's a coach. And I'm like, what are your insights, man? He says, oh, I've got a great one. He says, yesterday was eight days away from provincials. It was our last workout as a team where it was full strength workout. I said, keep talking. He says, we believe as coaches that the amount of time that you can have as a gap from your hard full strength workout to the actual event day when you're competing is eight days. It's the last time we can go full strength. So last night, I worked my team hard. One of the hardest workouts we've done, I know that that mental endurance, that anguish they went through, that's what will prepare them. Because if you set the bar that high with that amount of output, when it comes to provincials and competition, they all want to win. They're ready. He said, tell the people at Lifetree this. He said, I had athletes pulling off the track, vomiting from the excruciating pain and on their way leaving the track at the end of the day, they said, thanks, coach, great workout. Is that not awesome? Because those athletes know why they're training. They're training to win. They're not training to get in shape. They want to be the best in their field. They wouldn't have taken themselves to that level of endurance and anguish without a coach saying, you can do this, do another, go harder, more. That's the cloud of witnesses, guys. They're yelling out for us. They're crying out. They're showing us as coaches how to do this. And Jesus is the perfect template who for the joy set before him, endured the cross, scorned its shame, and sat down at the right hand of God, basically saying, you can do this too. I've beaten every adversary you'll ever encounter. That's how good it is. Guaranteed victory? Who gets to go into athletic endeavors and be guaranteed victory on starting day? Every one of us. Every one of us spiritually is guaranteed victory. We don't know how long the race is. We aren't often ready for it. Tim's in the back going, woo, woo, I'm with you, Tim. It's exciting, isn't it? It's a guarantee. 
I was sharing this a little bit this week with Caleb, and he had a great quote that I wrote down. Don't complain about the results you didn't get from the work you didn't put in. I'll read it again. Don't complain about the results you didn't get from the work you didn't put in. So wrapping up this passage, as I'd noted, when we jump into from the athletics and training and running picture to the parent and father and loving discipline picture, I want you to be clear there's words that aren't there on purpose. Anger, judgment, condemnation, wrath. What there is is a loving father who knows us perfectly with perfect intentions intentionally disciplining us for our good. Why? So that we may share in his holiness. The more we shed weight and shed sin, the more we become like him, the more we lean into being like him, we share in his holiness. I had this crazy driving experience this last week. You guys probably know living in BC that as people get to age 16, they're entitled to start driving vehicles and they get a little magnetized red L on the back of the family vehicle, and they're obligated with an L to drive with a parent or someone older than 25 in the passenger seat adjacent to them. I was driving home in a 40K zone. There was a shiny car in front of me. I was thinking, hmm, looks like a new car for a kid. And on the back was a shiny L and no license plate, none. So I could see the driver, just a little bit, small person. I could see what I presumed was the parent in the passenger seat. They're driving perfect speed limit, illegally. And my impulse, being a bit of a rule guy, is, oh, fine, phone 911. And I'm like, that's weird, no. Honk at them and pull them over. So I meep, 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 beeped, signal like this with my arm out the window. The person pulled the car over to the side, and they're there, and I pull up beside them. And I put down my window, and it's this little petite 16-year-old girl who immediately looks at me and goes like this and flips me the bird. <laughs> now, her father was on her right, and she was turned to her left. He had no idea what had just happened. And I said, do you know why I honked at you? She's like, she just lets loose on me. I, I said, it's because you're driving illegally. You don't have a license plate. And the father's like, what? And I said, I don't think the right response is to finger me. And the father goes, what? Because he hadn't seen it, and he's looking past his daughter at me. The license plate, I guess, had been propped in the back window, had fallen down, was completely invisible. And I was just saying, you probably want to be more passive on your response to people. You're a small girl driving a vehicle illegally, and I'm trying to help. Well, his fa her father was getting ready for the talk. You could see it coming, right? I was like, I'll go now. See you guys. And I've been in that driver's seat and that passenger seat, right, as the kid with the L and with the kids with the L. There was nothing in that dad that was ready for the knowledge that on an early rookie drive, his daughter would flip the bird at someone pulling them over. You could tell he was just like absolutely flabbergasted. So there had to have been some good talks that came out of that, right? Let's think about the reasons why God disciplines his children. I think there's three. I'm sure we could create more categories, but I think if we just want to look at the reasons why God disciplines his children, first of all, you're doing something wrong. It's correction. 
how many of you at some point in your life, either as a little younger person, lost your temper and told someone off in authority, stole someone from someone's store, did something to a neighbor that was shameful for your family, and one of your parents trotted you over, put you in a situation where you had to face that store owner, that neighbor, that teacher, and say, I'm sorry for, and it's like time stood still while your parent watched over you, and hopefully this person received. Did, it, did anyone else have these experiences? Was it just me? Okay, yeah. Th those are correction moments, right? Th those are hopefully in the heart of the parent who's bringing about this corrective discipline is like you need to learn that that's not how you talk. That's not how you take from the neighbor's garden even though the tomatoes look good. That's not how you speak to the police officer, whatever it was. And the goal is that well-disciplined children learn from the corrective discipline and they don't repeat. The joy of every parent is my kid makes new mistakes, doesn't repeat old ones, right? Because you see they're evolving. They're growing, they're learning. But in addition to correction, there's also protection. Sometimes our kids are getting into places where their relationships or their behaviors are a bit freaky for the parent and maybe they're even a bit afraid, but they don't know how to slow themselves down. I'm the parent who when my kids are like, oh yeah, I've got a friend who you've never met with parents you've never met and I'm gonna sleep over the next two nights, see ya. Like, wait a second, I need the phone number. I actually have to go meet the parents. And I found that having sons and then moving to having daughter, the heightened attentiveness was there. That was protective. And it was expected in my mind that this is what a dad would do. So you've got corrective, you've got protective, and you've got education. Just simply, here's a time to learn. You're making a poor choice here, there's a better choice you can make there. And in the context of relationships where you ki your kids know that your eyes get moist just when you look at them, their hearts understand that your desire is for their good. They may not in the moment. And the author to the Hebrews says this, Moreover, verse 9, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us. And he puts this in, I like it. We respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of our spirits and live? But then he says, our fathers disciplined us for a little while as they thought best. And he's kind of going from we respected them for it to uh, they tried. And let's face it, every parent lands at a different level of success on disciplining their children. And the point is, Earthly parents do their best. A perfect father nails it every time. And he's so toward you with his heart because remember, you are the joy set before him. That all he's longing for is a perfect outcome in your life that's guaranteed victory in a race that is so endurance driven. What a wonderful God we have. The fear of the Proverbs writer quoted in Hebrews don't make light of the Lord's discipline, and don't lose heart when he rebukes you. You could either take it too lightly, you could either be overwhelmed and take it too harshly. And he says what you need to realize is there's this intent of a loving father behind it all. So that you don't lose heart, and you don't take it lightly. As he says again and again, it's painful, not pleasant, but we should welcome it. So that we can share in his holiness and produce a harvest of righteousness and peace. To wrap up this morning, I'm going to suggest we break into groups of three or four people, 
not everyone's going to feel comfortable to share, but I'm going to encourage you to quickly share if you're willing and, and free. Just model it for those, if you're not comfortable, let someone else model it for you, how to do this. What we're going to do is talk about what's making you weary, and, or, or where would you like to lose weight? Does that make sense? Some area of life where you're feeling weary, worn out, and others can bless you, affirm you, encourage you. We're to be reminded by this passage, there's the cloud of witness cheering for us. We're fixed on Jesus. He's shown us the way. But together, there's strength and there's ability. But we have to be letting the Spirit work in our lives to say, yeah, this is an area where I've been, oh, it's been getting heavy. You don't have to dump all your dirty laundry in front of the other three people in your group. You can use wisdom here. But what is it that's getting you weary that we can pray for? Where would you like to lose weight where you know that if you do this, you're going to lean out and your race times are going to get better? And as we jump into that, I'm just going to pray for you as you go. Lord Jesus, you're a loving, loving Savior. You've given yourself for us. We've got a cloud of witnesses cheering us on. What good company we're in together at Life Tree. We pray, Jesus, a blessing over each one here that rather than feeling any sense of shame, or ridicule, quite the opposite. We would feel championed and upheld and celebrated and valuable and loved. And Lord, our desire would keep our eyes on you. As we take a moment, Lord, together, I pray there'd be some new friendship sparks going, some new accountability driving in our lives, and just a moment to reflect as you, Holy Spirit, call us to where we are getting a little worn out or exhausted, or where there's something you would have us say goodbye to so that we can go faster toward you. We pray in your magnificent name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Lifetree Church Sermon of the Week. At Lifetree, we are a family all about declaring and displaying Jesus to transform lives and benefit our city. If you'd like to find out more about Lifetree, you can find us online at lifetree.ca.